The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities, or NASCA, is providing this podcast as a service to its members, associate members, and others. But it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of NASCA policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the NASCA Association. Views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the NASCA podcast host are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the view of NASCA or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our office at nasca.org. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances. Leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. Welcome to the program. My name is Alan McGill. I am here with Josh Schneider. Pronounce your name correctly, Josh? That's right, Josh Schneider. And what we're talking about is the emergency dispensing of buprenorphine. It's a program that is happening in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, tell us a little bit about yourself before we start on on the actual uh, topic, Josh. Sure. So first and foremost, I'm an EMS provider. I got involved in EMS when I was in high school uh, at 17 years old, becoming an EMT, working at my local volunteer ambulance service in New Jersey. Uh, I then went to the University of Pittsburgh, where I continued to volunteer as an EMT in the suburban EMS services outside of Pittsburgh. And then I, I became involved in the emergency medicine program at the University of Pittsburgh, which is a bachelor's major major program where you know your junior and senior year you are studying emergency medicine directly. So junior year for me was just paramedic school. So during my junior year I became a paramedic, and then senior year I worked as a paramedic part time at Valley Ambulance Authority, which is an ambulance service just outside Pittsburgh, uh, northwest of Pittsburgh. And then I also took classes on things like critical care and community paramedicine, uh, emergency management. So my bachelor's degree is in emergency medicine, and uh, I have worked as a paramedic ever since. After leaving Pitt, I started uh, in AmeriCorps VISTA, which is a federal government program uh, that stipends individuals to do anti-poverty work. So I went to work in the mayor's office uh, under a woman named Laura Joukowsky, who was the critical communities manager was really the liaison between the city of Pittsburgh and all the human services that existed at the county level. And my job was really to build up the city's strategy around overdose prevention. So this was all under AmeriCorps VISTA. During my time at AmeriCorps, my boss, Laura, created what was known as the Office of Community Health and Safety. And so that was an office that really expanded the work she was already doing, which really deserved a full complement of staff to really build out alternative response programs, uh, public health programs at the city of Pittsburgh. And my role expanded then after I finished AmeriCorps VISTA into the city's first overdose prevention coordinator. So in this role, I really focus on three pillars. One is, uh, first and foremost, improving data so that we can use data and also the lived experience of individuals and uh, evidence to inform the public health interventions that we're doing to improve lives, improve safety, and reduce overdoses and death. 
also to do policy work. So to make sure that all of our policies are maximizing our ability to connect people with resources and care and have access to all the, the types of tools we can use to combat the overdose crisis. And then third is expanding access to treatment and harm reduction services. So you know things like buprenorphine, like we're discussing on today's episode, as well as things like syringe exchange programs, fentanyl test strips. So that's you know the a brief overview of my background and, and the work that I'm doing. Also a little bit unrelated, but I, I'm also an intermittent employee at the federal government. So I work for under HHS, Department of Health and Human Services, for the National Disaster Medical System. So I'm a public health advisor on the incident management team. So when there is a, a hurricane or a, a flooding, a natural or man-made disaster, I'll be deployed to help organize and, and coordinate surge of federal resources to the area to deal with that that disaster. So. That's some of my background, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to talk about the uh, pre-hospital buprenorphine program here today. Well, we're excited to have you. It's a topic that was brought up in our education committee, and we had a couple of members that were very interested in it, and I started doing a little research. And your program is only one of, if I understand correctly, it was only one of three in the nation? That's correct. There, there are probably a few more uh, like community paramedicine programs that allow their medics to give buprenorphine, but there are only three, to my knowledge that allow this to be part of the 911 system. So that first would be Camden, New Jersey, uh, Cooper University Hospital, and second being Contra Costa County, California. And so we're the third. So explain how the program works itself. Uh, you know, I guess maybe if you could go back to the beginning, like how did it start for you? Where did you guys come up with the idea and explain how it goes? Yeah. So like I was saying before, the first thing that I was really doing when I came into this role, first in AmeriCorps and then as an overdose prevention coordinator, was try to get a good handle on the scope of the crisis in the city of Pittsburgh and really looking at the data. So Allegheny County is the main public health entity in the region, and they uh, release data on about an annual basis for opioid overdose deaths. But we really want to look at this more of a real-time basis because there's not all that much you can do in real time when getting data months after you know, the, the year's end. So as a paramedic, I knew that we had access to near real-time data through EMS, through Pittsburgh EMS. We have EMS charts, which is our charting platform for paramedics and, and EMTs. And I knew that, you know, really because paramedics have to submit a chart 72 hours after a call takes place, that we really have the data in, in the near real-time fashion. So what I did was I created a system, a data infrastructure, and, and a dashboard that was public-facing where we could mine data from these overdose calls and get demographic information, information about uh, the, the scene and who gave Narcan, who was transported to the hospital and who was not, and really tried to use these insights to inform the efforts that we were undergoing. So in this dashboard, you can look at it on the Office of Community Health and Safety website for the city of Pittsburgh, but you'll see that you know, approximately 30% of patients who experience an opioid overdose decline transport to the hospital. And so in Pittsburgh EMS as a whole, on all, across all of our call types, only about 15% of patients decline transport to the hospital, and that can be for a number of reasons. But for patients that experience an opioid overdose, that number was doubled to, right now, uh, it's about 32%. And so if you think about what that means practically, that's 32% of patients after they experience a life-threatening emergency that are not getting any follow-up care whatsoever. Paramedics in the current form have very little ability to connect patients to longitudinal resources where they can really get referred to the services they need to enter long-term recovery and also get things like housing support, food, and other things that they need to live a safe and healthy life. And so, you know, at its best, the emergency department, if people are transported there after an overdose, can be a hub for resources. You can get connected with social work. You can get referred to medication for opioid use disorder or MOUD. But patients that don't go really have no opportunity to get any follow-up care whatsoever. 
But I can also understand why patients might not want to go to the hospital. Uh, patients that have just got, received Narcan are, are often in severe withdrawal. They're feeling very bad. And some will, you know, try to use again so they can relieve their withdrawal symptoms. In the ED, you know, people are not always treated as they should by you know, doctors or nurses. And that's not to disparage them. They do great work. But those situations can often be tense and people can leave AMA from the emergency department. And oftentimes, you know, some physicians are just unfamiliar with buprenorphine and are not administering it to all the patients that could potentially benefit. And that's something we've seen and, and learned from our providers that we've spoken to in the course of creating this program. So what Rio really sought to do was to give something tangible to the patients on the scene immediately after an overdose uh, so that we could, you know, fix something in that moment. Rather than just make a referral, we can give them something. We can relieve their withdrawal symptoms and then connect them to a service that immediately in the next day allow them to get more of that medication. So we looked to models across the country, eventually learning about Camden, New Jersey's program, where they allowed paramedics to, for the first time in the country, uh, administer buprenorphine on the scene immediately following an overdose. And for those that are not familiar, buprenorphine is a uh, medication that's approved by the FDA to treat opioid use disorder, uh, along with methadone, it is the most effective treatment for opioid use disorder, far more effective than abstinence-based therapy, and also more effective than naltrexone, which is an uh, antagonist, which blocks the effects of opioids. But methadone and buprenorphine are agonist medications, so they actually provide an opioid effect, and they relieve symptoms of withdrawal, they relieve cravings, and they allow people to really lead a, a stable life. And even if you're on the medication for the rest of your life, it is really a way that allows patients to, you know, stabilize their substance use disorder. And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, more patients could be get access to this very effective medication. So the way the program works is um, the call goes just like any other call. So they're dispatched to the scene. They'll address the patient's immediate life threats, in this case, most often treating an opiate overdose. And then what they would do is after the patient is conscious, alert, and oriented, they would measure the patient's level of withdrawal. So I'm just running through the, the, the protocol here. And there's really two classes of patients who are eligible for this. So one is a patient who has experienced an opiate overdose that required the administration of naloxone. And the other could be a patient that maybe didn't have an overdose, but called 911 because they were experiencing very severe withdrawal symptoms. Maybe they you know, were trying to stop using opioids on their own, but the withdrawal symptoms were just too severe, so they called 911. So both of these types of patients, the paramedic will assess for exclusion criteria. The patient cannot have used methadone for the previous 72 hours to avoid precipitating withdrawal. The patient must be conscious, alert, and oriented and able to consent to the, to the intervention. The patient has to be stable and not require any emergency resuscitative interventions. So if they, for example, have aspirated on vomit while they're overdosing and are now in respiratory distress, they're not able to receive buprenorphine. They have to be willing to give their name and date of birth at least. They have to be 18 years old. They cannot be incarcerated for this pilot program or pregnant. And they cannot have an allergy to buprenorphine. So if all those exclusion criteria are not met. Uh, they'll assess the patient's level of withdrawal using something called the clinical opiate withdrawal score. If that meets a certain threshold, they'll assess the patient's interest in buprenorphine. They'll use their motivational interviewing techniques to have these conversations and try to make sure that the patient is able to you know, accept this you know, change here. And then they'll consult with medical command if they agree that this is an appropriate intervention. They'll give buprenorphine, and then uh, the patient's withdrawal symptoms will be relieved fairly quickly. And then the patient can choose whether or not they want to go to the hospital. And then the really key part of this is that the patient will be referred to the UPMC telemedicine bridge clinic. This is a telemedicine line where the patient can speak with a doctor, usually within 24 hours, and get a prescription for buprenorphine that day. Um, so this is a really key part of the program. So not only are we giving patients some medication in real time, but we're also making sure that within 24 hours, they're able to get more of this medication so that they can enter long-term recovery. And then that telemedicine line will then connect them to a brick and mortar service that has more wraparound care 
and can uh, give them the full complement of substance use um, and recovery medicine services. So that, in a nutshell, is the program. And you know, patients that don't get the medication can still be referred to this line. But really, again, it's to, to capitalize on that opportunity. You have a patient in front of you. You want to make sure that you're doing everything you can in that moment, whether or not they want to go to the hospital, to connect them to the right care. How much buprenorphine uh, given to the patient at the time uh, when they encounter the paramedics? How much are the paramedics authorized to give them? So the first dose will be 16 milligrams. And then uh, if needed, after 10 minutes, if the symptoms either worsen or persist, they'll give an additional eight milligrams with a, a max dose of 24 milligrams for this protocol with the direct uh, advice and oversight of UPMC Addiction Medicine Services and the City of Pittsburgh Medical Director. And 16 milligrams is, is maybe what a higher dose than what you might see given in some emergency departments when a patient comes in withdrawal. But this is based on you know, research that shows that a high dose of buprenorphine is actually more effective. And buprenorphine is very interesting. There's really little risk of overdose of buprenorphine as opposed to methadone, for example. Buprenorphine has this ceiling effect at about 32 milligrams every day. Um, where you really can't achieve much more of a, an agonist effect of the buprenorphine beyond 32 milligrams. And so 16 milligrams will really do a good job at occupying all those mu opioid receptors in your brain. And so really what that is, is, is to avoid precipitated withdrawal. So just quickly, precipitated withdrawal, you know, buprenorphine is a partial agonist, while something like methadone or heroin or fentanyl is a full agonist. So if you look at it, like on a, think about it on a graph. If you take someone from a full agonist, like they're overdosing on heroin, for example, and you give them buprenorphine, you're bumping them down from a, a high level of stimulation of an opioid very rapidly to a mid-level of stimulation of an opioid. And that rapid change can cause a very, very severe and sudden withdrawal effects. So once someone has gotten naloxone and, and we're able to measure this using the cow score, the level of withdrawal that they're in, um, if they're on a high enough level of withdrawal, we know that a lot of their opioid receptors are unbound and will accept the, the suboxone. So suboxone or buprenorphine will displace other opioids. And so, you know, it'll displace heroin, fentanyl, methadone. And so it can, it can cause precipitate withdrawal. But when you give a large enough dose, and we know that their cow score is high enough, we're avoiding that. So that's the, the rationale behind the dose. Uh, so does that, does that answer that question? Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I was curious about was, and, and just to make sure, I guess to clarify it, the paramedics aren't actually giving them any take-home medications. They're administering it directly there, correct? That's correct. They're, they're giving them a uh, sublingual tablet. Although, you know, we have been exploring, and this is not something that I don't think will happen in the near future, but maybe um, a little bit down the line. We actually think it would be beneficial to give patients a, you know, three to five day supply of buprenorphine. If you look at the half-life of buprenorphine, it will last for about 24 to 48 hours. Uh, that's the amount of time it will take for the uh, withdrawal symptoms to, to potentially come back, for cravings to begin again. And, you know, by giving a patient you know, buprenorphine to potentially take home with them, uh, we're basically widening the window that they have to get connected with those follow-up resources. And the longer that they're able to, to stave off withdrawal symptoms, you know, the, the greater chance they have of sticking with this uh, mode of recovery and you know, they're able to follow through with other services. And I know that people often bring up the argument of diversion, you know, what if the medication is diverted? If you look at the research, actually, the majority of patients that you know, divert medication, that they use diverted buprenorphine, actually using it to treat withdrawal themselves. They're not necessarily using it recreationally, although some people certainly do that. But the vast majority of people are actually diverting buprenorphine to self-treat. And what this says to me is it speaks to the, the overall lack of access and the barriers that exist to receive buprenorphine. There's the X waiver, there's a limited number of providers, there's a lot of contingencies and um, things that you need to comply with in order to, to be on buprenorphine that can be burdensome for patients. So um, I would actually advocate for giving patients a take-home supply, but at the current present moment, 
patients do not get a take-home supply. What happens is the paramedics administer the buprenorphine, and then they're referred for follow-up where they can actually get their take-home supply, the emergency dose, from a UPMC provider. Is that right? Yeah, so, so they're able to have a, a very brief appointment with a um, UPMC physician who is X-wavered uh, over the phone, uh, which we get audio only or audio visual, and then they'll write the prescription that they can pick up at their pharmacy of choice, usually that day. Okay, and you had said that you know they cannot have used methadone or beyond methadone prior to the event. Is that right? Yeah, in the previous 72 hours, and that's not meant to exclude patients who are on other forms of treatment. Um, but it's really meant to avoid precipitated withdrawal. So like I said, methadone is a full agonist. So if you have methadone in your system and, and you are at a you know, full agonist level and then you get buprenorphine, you're going to be very rapidly bumped down to a you know only partial level of stimulation. And that rapid change is what causes precipitated withdrawal, which is a very severe form of withdrawal that patients, it makes them feel very sick. And so we're, we're, we're looking to avoid that. So that's the reason why. How do you verify that they're not on methadone other than them just saying they're not? So you'd have to ask the patient, you know, something I like to do as a paramedic, been on a lot of these scenes, I've been on a lot of these calls, spoken to a lot of patients with opioid use disorder uh, in the course of, of being a paramedic. I, I just do try to, to believe patients. I mean, I, I try to take them at their word, to take what they say as, as truthful and, you know, just explain to them that, you know, the reason why we're asking you that, you know, whether you're on methadone or not is because it can cause you know, severe withdrawal symptoms. So we, we just, we're not asking you to you know, get you in trouble or to punish you in any way. We just, we just want to know so we can make the right medical decision. Oh, well, I understand that, but the uh, one of the problems that has a that has arisen of course is the fact that the methadone clinics as well as uh, buprenorphine providers it's not part of the part of the PDMP program. So there's really no way to verify that. Lots of occasions where patients will present for methadone treatment, but then they're also not telling the methadone clinic that they're also getting buprenorphine from another provider or they're going there. So the only way that it's going to go into the PDMP system is if that buprenorphine provider gives them a prescription to go have it filled at a retail pharmacy. But if they're dispensing directly out of the facility, they're not going to see that. So, and then of course the methadone clinics can, you know, their medical director access the PDMP, but that's one of the barriers, you know, that we have in, in trying to connect that. I'm curious as your thoughts on something like that. You know, I think we would you know, always love to see greater coordination among recovery medicine providers so that we can have these things. But you know, paramedics on scene really would not be able to verify what a patient is on using the PDMP. I don't think paramedics have access to the PDMP. And certainly, I don't, I don't know if it would be realistic for them to you know, do that search on a scene when they're, they're trying to move in, in a relatively quick fashion. But you know, certainly, greater coordination among different providers would help. Uh, similar to what, what exists in other forms of treatment for other types of uh, diseases. Well, it certainly would be helpful if the methadone clinics weren't exempt from the PDMP. You know, if they could share when someone is actually receiving treatment at a facility, then uh, even the medical director at UPMC, for example, could access it for the paramedic. I think what it really comes down to is, you know, working collaboratively, collaboratively with your patients, just explaining to them how the program works, how the medication works, and, and that really all that we're looking to do here is, you know, do what's in the best interest of the patient, make them feel better in that moment when they're feeling very severe withdrawal symptoms. Um, I think, you know, when you're coming from at it from a collaborative standpoint, working together with the patient in partnership with them to do what is best for them, you know, that's what will produce the best outcomes. 
The other thing I wanted to ask you too is uh, because you had sort of mentioned you talked about paramedics using their interviewing techniques. Are, do you guys receive specialized training in in interviewing techniques at any time during your career? The thing that I mentioned was motivational interviewing, which is you know really you trying to elicit the patient's own motivations to encourage them to make a change. Uh, so that specifically is not something that is taught in most paramedic curriculums for the entry level paramedic. It is something that is a staple of a social workers practice or a community paramedic. And so it's something that we incorporated into the training for the buprenorphine program. So I can talk a little bit about the training. Really, it was you know, in two parts. There's the didactic portion and then the practical training portion. So we're learning about opioid use disorder, disease pathology, different types of opioid use disorder treatment, everything about buprenorphine that a paramedic would need to know, everything from the mechanism to the side effects to contraindications and interactions, uh, potential adverse events and routes of administration. We're going over the full protocol and, and learning how to apply it in a practical sense. And then also a full presentation on motivational interviewing, perhaps not the depth that a you know, practicing community paramedic or a social worker would get, but enough to give them the skills to uh, you know, correctly orient these conversations and, and not come at it from a you know, standpoint of just saying, you know, you should, you should take this medication. We have this program and, and you should do this, but rather um, actually diving into this a little bit with the patient, you know, being a little bit more deliberate with your communication, spending a little bit more time on scene, perhaps, and, and having these conversations so that you can understand, you know, what the patient's going through. You can understand, like, what their motivations might be for making a change and, and use that and encourage them to accept this treatment and start buprenorphine. How many paramedics, I guess I'm, I'm gathering from what you just said, it doesn't sound like every paramedic in the city of Pittsburgh. How many people do you guys have that are authorized to participate in this? So currently we have 36 paramedics who are authorized to administer buprenorphine. And we started the pilot for three ALS units, advanced life support units, which is just a double paramedic crew. So that was medics two, three, and eight, which is all all the area of South Pittsburgh. And this is the area in Pittsburgh with the highest incidence of opioid overdoses. So on those three units, there are a total of 24 paramedics. 12 of which opted into the training. So this was an optional training, and I can talk about you know, what the uh, effects of that were in a little bit. But the program has since been expanded to three additional units. So that's Medics 4 and 10, which is the entirety of the north side, and then uh, Medic 11, which is a portion of the east end of Pittsburgh. So these are other areas where there are hotspots of opiate overdoses, uh, and which we're really trying to you know, roll this out in those areas first, making sure that there's geographic diversity and, and racial diversity as well. Um, so we're making sure that all patients have access, all you know, types of patients have access to these, these resources. So the initial training was only you know, 12 paramedics were trained. The, the reason why this was optional was just kind of the way that these types of trainings are structured and these types of pilot programs are structured within Pittsburgh EMS. And you know, at first I was a little disappointed that we were not able to mandate the training and, and have everybody do it. But I actually think it's, it's beneficial that the training was made optional. What's really critical here is trying to permeate a positive message throughout the Bureau about this program. There is stigma, obviously, around opioid use disorder. There's also stigma around agonist treatment like buprenorphine or MOUD, medication for opioid use disorder. And so by allowing providers to opt in to the training, uh, ensured that we were getting the paramedics who were fully motivated and excited about implementing this program. And what the effect of that is, is as this program got underway, you had those people who were really excited about it spreading a positive message throughout the Bureau. And the effect of that is now we have people who are clamoring to get the training. They want to be involved in this pilot. They're asking when it's going to be approved for their unit so that they can begin doing this. We know that you know, paramedics can be very frustrated by the lack of their ability to have a you know, sustainable solution and really help a person 
after an opiate overdose. They're able to give them naloxone and save their life, but they often just take them to the ED where they oftentimes don't get the treatment and, and get into long-term recovery. So this is really giving them the ability to do more, have a, a longer-term, more longitudinal uh, solution to this, where they can really help patients in the long term. So we have, you know, a lot of people who are excited about this program, Pittsburgh EMS, and it's expanding rapidly, hoping to get the entire bureau offered the training by the end of the summer. There's only three places in the country that are doing this. Are there certain criteria or parameter that had to be that was given to you, for example, by maybe the Department of Health or DEA or, or some other governmental agency that said you had to be a certain size? Because it doesn't sound like this is going out into the, the rural areas or the counties. We utilized the pilot program approval process at the Pennsylvania Department of Health Bureau of EMS to get this approved. So we essentially created a proposal. We gave the proposal and presented to the both regional medical advisory committee, a cohort of medical command physicians, and then the state medical advisory committee, who then made a positive recommendation to the Department of Health, who then reviewed it and approved it. Um, so we did speak with the Department of Health Bureau of EMS throughout this process and you know, learned what they were looking for in a proposal. So they really wanted to see, first and foremost, compliance with all state and federal regulations, which we did. And then they also wanted to make sure that there was you know, direct medical oversight, that there was involvement of physicians in this. And then also that there was a, a very strong linkage to follow-up care, that we weren't just giving buprenorphine to people and then you know, saying goodbye. Rather, we were making sure that they were connected to somewhere where they can get more of the medication and you know, follow a recovery medicine program. So, you know, we did all those things. Uh, there was no like requirements for a size of an EMS service. I think anyone could apply for a pilot program, and it just depends on their review of the program uh, and if they make a positive recommendation to the state and if the state approves it. How is the X waiver for buprenorphine providers factoring into what you're doing? Because your paramedics aren't X waivered. That's right. Yeah. So, so obviously. In order to prescribe buprenorphine, you need to have an X waiver. There is a, a workaround for that. So in for the X waiver, there's something called the three-day rule, which I'm sure a lot of people listening might be familiar with. If I'm correct, the three-day rule allows emergency department physicians or advanced practice providers to administer buprenorphine in the ED for three consecutive days. And I know that that's recently being, or that in the near future, it's being expanded. There was a law passed called the EZMAT Act. It was actually introduced, I believe, by a uh, physician who did their residency at, or sorry, it was introduced by a congressman who is a physician that did their residency at UPMC and the University of Pittsburgh, interestingly. And so that's the EZMAT Act, which actually allows not physicians not to only uh, administer for up to three days in a row, but actually to give patients in the ED without an X waiver a three-day three take-home supply. So it's trying to you know, make it easier uh, for patients to get buprenorphine and be bridged to a longer-term form of care. So we work around this by basically acting on the, the three-day rule logic. So uh, the way that paramedics give other types of narcotic medications like fentanyl or you know, benzodiazepines like Versed uh, is under the auspices of the physician's license, the medical director's license. So when they give a medication, they're oftentimes getting approval from the medical hand physician, online medical direction. And under their direct orders, patient-specific order, they're being authorized to give a narcotic medication. So obviously, paramedics don't have a DEA number, they don't have a DEA license, but they're acting under the auspices of the physician. So in the same way that an emergency department provider is able to operate under the three-day rule without an X waiver, the paramedics are simply acting as an extension of the physician's ability to do that. And you know, we, that's the argument we made to the Department of Health. They found that to be sufficient. We also made the argument that there were two other programs already doing this in Camden, New Jersey, and Contra Costa County, California, who were you know, operating 
in compliance with state and federal law with the precedent in place and the argument we made about the three-day rule and acting as an extension of that, you know, they found that to be sufficient. And uh, that's what we're doing. Are you able to share any of your data now? I mean, how long has the program been in place? And are you able to talk about the successes and failures that you've had with it so far? Yeah, so the program went live on November 19th, uh, 2021. Like I said, you know, we started with three ALS units with uh, about 12 paramedics trained. The numbers were pretty low to start. I won't give you the exact numbers just because it is a little bit low, but it's currently less than a dozen patients have received buprenorphine. And it has been a kind of a slow uptake, but I wouldn't say that that is a marker of a program's success or failure, uh, but rather it's just a result of you know all the things that have to go right for a patient to be able to get buprenorphine. So you need to have an ALS unit that has buprenorphine stocked on it with a paramedic working on that unit who is trained and authorized to administer buprenorphine. Responding to a call for an opioid overdose with someone in withdrawal that meets all the inclusion criteria that then consents to receive buprenorphine. So that's pretty, um, a, a lot of things have to align and go right for a patient to match up with a provider who can get buprenorphine. And so that's, you know, the reason for the low numbers up to this point. But, you know, what we know is that as number of paramedics who are authorized to, to give the buprenorphine expands, there will be more patients that receive the medication. We also started this program at a time when the overdoses were kind of in a, a lull, a dip. In the winter months, we do see a lower number of opiate overdoses here in the city of Pittsburgh. That's something we learned from the opiate overdose dashboard that we created. Um, so we're expecting that as we get into the warmer months, we will see more administrations. And also as we expand the program within the Bureau, we'll see more administrations. And that's actually in the past couple of weeks is starting to play out where we're seeing greater frequency of buprenorphine calls. Has there been any pushback from whether it be political pushback or otherwise that is opposed to the program that you started? We have not experienced much pushback. Certainly, there are people who had their criticisms of the program, but that was more done in a productive way, a constructive way. We got unanimous votes on the regional and state medical advisory committees. We received approval from the State Department of Health with little conditions that placed on the program. So, no, there really has not been a whole lot of pushback. I think medics recognize that this is something that really allows them to you know, do something tangible for people experiencing opioid withdrawal and people who have experienced an opioid overdose. They know that what they're doing right now is not enough and it's not because of any faults of their own, but they're just simply not given the tools. And this is a tool that allows them to really do more for their patients. And I think they're welcoming that. Obviously, not every paramedic who has been offered has accepted the training. That could be for a number of reasons. But I think as People recognize the success of this program and, and the ability of it to change lives for patients and save lives. More and more people become accepting of it. And it's really part of you know, breaking that stigma, too. What plans do you guys have for the future with the program? Or are you just hoping to get through this year and see how it goes? The pilot program is authorized for one year. That will wrap up in the end of October. We have the ability to expand it if, to, uh, sorry, to lengthen the, the pilot term if needed. But you know, we're hoping to expand this to the rest of the Bureau before the end of the summer. We're going to seek approval from the state to get additional units approved to carry the medication. We also have been speaking with a lot of other cities who have heard about this program uh, who seek to replicate it. So uh, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Albany, Fort Worth, Fort Lauderdale, Frederick, Maryland uh, have all reached out to us and we've provided them all the materials that we have from our proposal to our training materials to be able to replicate it and, and adapt it to their EMS system. There's also been some interest from uh, legislators in Pennsylvania. So I appeared before the Center for Rural Pennsylvania, which is legislative agency of the General Assembly of Pennsylvania, uh, made up of uh, state lawmakers and governor's appointees from academia and advocacy groups. 
uh, well, I, I spoke about this program and I testified on it as just a, an alternative way to you know, expand treatment for people with opioid use disorder. And especially in rural areas, which was the subject of that hearing, there's obviously diminished access to substance use disorder treatment and recovery medicine services in rural areas. So this is really an alternative model. EMS can really be a, an access point for so many patients. So we're hoping to expand it uh, very, very soon, hoping to help other cities expand it and create programs of their own. And I think it'll, it'll really open up a new frontier for uh, the ability to provide improved care for patients with opioid use disorder in the EMS pre-hospital setting. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate you taking the time with me this morning to to talk about the program. And it sounds like it's going well. And I'm very interested to see how the rest of the year progresses for you. And and uh, I congratulate you on getting it going and, and wish you much success with it. Yeah, thank you. And, and I can just say one kind of final message um, about our overall uh, more philosophical approach to opioid disorder here at the city of Pittsburgh. It's really founded in a harm reduction. You know, hope that Listeners here have maybe heard of harm reduction. If not, I think it's a, a concept that should be driving our response to the opioid overdose crisis. And it's really seeking to reduce harms associated with opioid use disorder and, and drug use as a whole, rather than ignoring or condemning the effects. The least we can do is make it safer and keep people alive until they're able to enter recovery. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On behalf of the executive board of NASCA and our education committee, I want to thank you for joining us. The music for this podcast was provided by Joseph McDade. And if you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. You can support Joe on Patreon. You can also find all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors, Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nasca.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.